1: It's 4th Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. I'm Marcus Costello. Coming up, trigger warnings. Are they political correctness gone mad or just a decent thing to do? Plus, Facebook's trending news. What goes wrong when editors are replaced by a robot? And mobile first news. Is it creating a generation of second-class citizens? Joining me in the studio is Culture Editor at Guardian Australia, Steph Harmon. Hello, Steph. Hi, Marcus. And host of 2SER Breakfast and former senior editor at CNET, Nick Healy. Hey, Nick. Good evening. And on the line, research fellow from the Institute of Public Affairs, Daniel Wilde. Hi, Daniel. Hello. Trigger warning this story contains descriptions of sexual violence. It doesn't, really. That's just an example of the kind of trigger warnings that have been prefacing blog posts for years. But now they're being used in mainstream media and increasingly in uni lectures and the inside cover of course readers. It has conservatives and some lecturers up in arms concerned we're mollycoddling a generation of students. But assistant professor of English at Colby College, Aaron R. Hanlon, wrote in The New Republic... I use trigger warnings in the classroom as a way of preparing students who may be suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, while also easing the entire class into a discussion of the material. The thinking behind the idea that trigger warnings are a form of censorship is fundamentally illogical. Those who are offering warnings at a professional discretion about potentially triggering material are doing so precisely because we're about to teach it. If we used trigger warnings to say, don't read this, it's scary, then there'd be no need to warn in the first place. We'd just leave the material off the syllabus. So I want to go around and see where everyone stands on this. Steph, where do you position yourself?
2: So prior to my work at Guardian Australia, I was editing Junkie and we used to do quite a few articles around... um issues that were fairly controversial or fairly sensitive and we would occasionally use trigger warnings there. We don't use them at The Guardian uh, so much. I personally, I understand why a massive company like The Guardian would not want to kind of delve into something that um, everyone would use at different discretion um, and it, it's really difficult to kind of make a standard rule for a global publication. But at Junkie, I was quite happy to use them because I felt um, they're not really harming anybody. They might just be making someone's life a little bit easier.
0: I think they're common courtesy to a large degree, and I I do appreciate seeing them. Daniel, how about yourself? Well, from a legal perspective,
3: I don't uh, see any issue. I think organisations should be free to issue trigger warnings where they see it's appropriate, but I think there is a big problem where trigger warnings are increasingly being used on campus, where I think it can become somewhat patronising and even infantilising, because they can be predicated on an assumption that people can't control how they feel and need to be protected from ideas, opinions and events that they may find to be disagreeable. I think that may be true um, of children. It may be necessary for children and minors, but certainly not of adults uh, who are at a university, in part, to actually be challenged. Um, So I think trigger warnings on campus can be quite harmful.
0: I couldn't disagree more. I actually think that's a a common misconception that people get very confused about people being upset about something and people being profoundly psychologically disturbed by something because of things that have happened in their past. I actually think it's a really common uh, misconception about what trigger warnings are aiming to do.
2: I also think that it kind of takes away the onus from the student. I think a a student can be warned and be pre-warned and be prepared for something that's happening in a lecture room. If they decide to then leave that lecture room, that's their decision. And if, they, if they're if they not getting the kind of well-rounded education that they're paying for from that decision, that's kind of a decision they've made and that's their responsibility. It's, it's not something that they're impacting an entire generation of young people's education.
1: Couldn't it be argued, Dan, that having a trigger warning means content is more likely to stay on a syllabus and more people are willing to meaningfully engage with it because it might otherwise be cut altogether?
3: I don't think that's the case. There's been instances even in Australia where, for example, a senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne noted the general sort of anti-intellectual climate that is associated with trigger warnings. She noted that over the past couple of years, students have been increasingly policing the language of lecturers and would shout out corrections in the middle of lectures rather than engaging with the actual content uh, of those matters. So I think it has a broader um, it has a broader imposition uh, on the actual uh, intellectual and educational climate of an education institution, which can have broader ramifications uh, for the way that students engage with the content.
1: Counter to that, couldn't you argue then that the lexicon is evolving and it's a new generation of students who are gauging what's acceptable and what's not, and in challenging that, that is in itself inherently academic?
3: I think uh, that is, to an extent, predicated on a, on a false uh, assumption there. I think ultimately uh, what research, a lot of research in, in psychology will show is that uh, people who may have experienced uh, traumatic events in the past and who may have sensitivities towards particular subject matters uh, actually need to be exposed to those issues in order to become comfortable with them again. And the prospect of I- issuing trigger warnings as a prompt to potentially avoid those events or avoid being exposed to different opinions or sensitive issues may actually further agra- uh, ingrain problems rather than resolving them.
1: I've actually found that that's the voice that's been missing from the conversation. People actually haven't asked those people with PTSD, has this been a real beneficial service to you. It seems that a lot of people have been speaking on their behalf.
3: Well, I think ultimately, um, the situation with trigger warnings on campus is qualitatively different to trigger warnings in other areas, so whether it's in newspapers, TV shows, movies, or books and so forth. So I I would quarantine education institutions from uh, those other uh, forms of media and so forth, uh, because I think education institutions exist in part as an explicit way to broaden people's horizons and to expose them uh, to new ideas. And so I think there's a categorical difference um, when it comes to campus and uh, education.
2: But what about using those trigger warnings as a warning? Like, it's about preparing people. It's not about saying, if you're going to be offended, you leave.
3: Sure. I think in that context, I'd note that the broader anti-intellectual climate Uh, that has been associated with trigger warnings. As I said before, the University of Melbourne uh, senior lecturer noting that students, rather than actually engaging in the um, particulars of a content or wanting to engage intellectually on an issue, are instead policing language and uh, shouting out corrections.
0: Look, I'll just jump in and say it's been a little while since I did my degree, but when you are trying to expose people to something that they have found extraordinarily problematic in their past, you don't just throw it out there. It's done within a, a, a very rigorous and clinical kind of uh, circumstances. It's not just a lecturer saying, get on board with it.
3: No, I think that's right. And I don't think it is. Um, I think you know, many lecturers and professors are best suited to know how to teach students and are in the best position to know how um, to get the most out of the students and to give uh, students the best education that they can. And so it's not clear to me that uh, the trigger warnings are a necessary component of that. Uh, It can set up incentives also for uh, lecturers uh, and professors to just avoid content altogether. If they are concerned um, that students may be offended, they may choose um, to avoid teaching uh, that content in the first instance. So it it can set up a bit of a slippery slope in that context. Uh, First, it may be with trigger warnings, and then it may be just easier or more convenient uh, to avoid that content altogether.
2: But surely that's happened forever. Surely lecturers forever have been trying to work out what parts of their courses they should be teaching and what parts are going to be deeply traumatising to their students.
0: We're not talking about offence. You know, we're talking about someone just being upset about something. We're talking about people having a profound reaction to something. that That's what the trigger warning is there for, not just you might find this a sticky subject.
2: And so maybe then we're talking about overuse. Maybe, maybe in order for a trigger warning to be a, a successful concept to be Im- implemented across universities, there needs to be some kind of layer of trigger warning. Like, a, you know, there needs to be a trigger warning for something that's going to be deeply, you know... I can see that. Rather than we're going to be discussing sexual assault, we're going to be showing footage of something... Being re-enacted.
0: well the way we're now quite used to um uh, warnings regarding the depictions of dead people uh that may be of aboriginal or torres strait islander hmm. dan do you agree with that look i think the one of the key
3: problems with the trigger warnings is they actually go beyond instances where there may be you know someone may have personally experienced a traumatic event of the past so for example there there may be trigger warnings given over if you're going to be uh engaging with material that involves, say. Um, something from the part, an historical event like in relation to slavery or the relation to in which women may have been treated in the past and so forth, which is an historical event that actually occurred. And it's important that people uh, just engage with that event and that learning experience in an intellectual way rather than um, emotionalizing with that event, um, which I think is categorically different to a, discussing a situation uh, where someone may have in their past themselves personally experienced uh, a particular event. So I think the trigger warnings have broadened and, in a sense, become uh, a bit more trivialised.
1: You mentioned here the subjugation of women historically. Trigger warnings often draw attention to patriarchal oppression, so maybe that's something that conservatives don't want to talk about.
3: I think what conservatives want to talk about is intellectual freedom and the ability of students to engage on campus in a serious way uh, with serious ideas. I think that's the main uh, concern with regards to trigger warnings and the attendant um, anti-intellectual damage that 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 can do on, on a campus.
1: So studies show that academics and journalists on the whole lean left, which makes me wonder if a conversation about trigger warnings is a way for Conservatives to talk about something bigger and more abstract, and that is the political climate on campus and in the media. Daniel, what's your take on that?
3: Look, I think there are serious questions um, with the uh, nature of um, university campuses in some instances, uh, particularly because they receive large amounts of government funding. It's not as if these are purely um, you know, private institutions. If they are purely private institutions would completely defend their right to engage in subjects and topics purely in a way that they see fit but the reality is that it is receiving um, you know, a significant amount of government uh, subsidies and regulation of the sector that that itself can be very restrictive to competition and very restrictive to the actual um, ability of students to source uh, different ideas and different ways of teaching and so my main concern with um, that overall uh, higher education environment, is not so much the particular people, uh, like the professors or the, the lecturers involved, but the fact that there are pretty high barriers to entry in terms of becoming an education institution and there's also a significant amount of government involvement uh, in those existing education institutions which can incentivise uh, a particular way of teaching at the expense of others.
1: You're listening to 4th Estate, I'm Marcus Costello and I'm speaking with Daniel Wild, Nick Healy and Steph Harmon. Back in May, a former Facebook employee revealed that the trending module on the site's homepage was curated by a small team of people, not an algorithm, and that conservative news was often intentionally left off the trending list. While Facebook denies accusations of political bias, the company did say that the reason behind moving towards a fully automated system was to remove bias. This week, the trending team was replaced by an algorithm, and the results have not been good. We've seen a fake news report about Meghan Kelly and a YouTube video of a guy in a McChicken Burger that, well, we just shouldn't have seen. Under its old human-assisted guidelines, Facebook trends have been monitored to weed out potentially offensive or inappropriate items. First up, does anyone actually click on Facebook's trending topics? I do. You do?
2: But I think that that's just, as an editor, I like to know what people are talking about. So I'm not sure if I'd do it if I was just an everyday Facebook punter.
1: It doesn't know necessarily that you're editing for other people. Do you think it has a good idea of who you are and what you want?
2: Um, I think it does a much worse job at that than my timeline does. I think my timeline's a lot more kind of clued into what I click on and is feeding me a lot more of that kind of stuff. I think that the trending – is it is the trending thing targeted to each person specifically or –
1: Well, that's what I can't work out because when I tried today for the first time clicking up there in that right-hand region on the trending module – I couldn't get any news that was local. It was yeah, all what I, I, was trending in the States and none of it was of any interest to me.
2: Yeah, I think it's more generalised than than, than specific.
0: Look, yeah. my understanding was there was a, a certain level of it being uh, tailored towards things you had liked, things you had been paying attention to, uh, which is why one of the great problems of it was that, say, uh, people who tend to be small l liberal aren't getting a lot of conservative viewpoints, even if they were interested in reading them it's not showing up in this trending sort of a news area. Now, I certainly don't click on them, but I I, I really hope some of my producers do. I'll say that.
3: Daniel, how about yourself? Well, I think what's interesting is, um, it, in terms of context, is all of Facebook is a cu- curated information and news source It's explicitly designed to be that way. So you connect with people, uh, which in turn are probably people that you... Uh, would by and large agree with on, on a number of things and then you receive news and information that is related uh, to what they choose uh, to share and so forth. So I think Facebook is is itself is designed to tailor news and information to you and if that's been done through the trending mechanism, that just seems like a logical extension of that particular uh, approach to providing information.
1: But if all news comes to us by way of an editor or an, an algorithm... Why was there such an uproar when Gizmodo revealed that Facebook had a team of editors curating their trending news?
2: I think, I think that uproar was because Facebook has sold itself as a platform and not as a media outlet. Um, I think when it's a platform, there's the kind of understanding that you're getting an unfiltered view of the world based on what your friends are sharing, and if all of a sudden there's people you don't know behind, behind the wall.
1: So is it reasonable for Zuckerberg to stick with his
0: line that Facebook is just a platform?
2: No, <laughs> not anymore. They're
0: an aggregator more than they are a platform. And and every ag- ag- aggregator has always had this issue. Facebook's just massive, so it's such a bigger issue.
1: I guess by calling yourself a platform, you absolve yourself of certain responsibilities as a news provider. Like, there's a whole ethics conversation you don't have to have.
2: And it doesn't help that Facebook's kind of cannibalising the media industry and taking all of its advertising money. So they're, 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 they're trying to have their cake and eat it too.
0: What this actually reminded me of is the old school um, search portals. So pre kind of Google, where actually a lot of what you'd search for had been read by humans and ranked as to how relevant it was to that search term. So there was a very human element to the way you actually found stuff on the web before Google came in with an algorithm and changed all of that.
1: Well, I guess we'll never really know what the coding behind the Google or the Facebook algorithm really is. I mean, every day somebody else is having a crack at what it might be and whoever gets it wins the... $64 million
0: prize. (laughs) I think the question is, where do we get our news from these days? I mean, is it only off aggregated services? Do we actually go looking for it? Do we search? Do we hear friends talking about it and say, well, that's fascinating. I should look that up right now. Where are we actually going for news? Is it only delivered or are we seeking it out? That's what's interesting to me.
2: And I think that you'll find the majority of people, or at least a a definitively growing amount of people, are getting their news solely from Facebook and from what's coming up on the feed. So it is coming from recommendations from your friends and from some kind of faceless, nameless algorithm that apparently even the guy who invented that algorithm doesn't understand anymore.
0: Which makes me feel like someone's nan, because I still go to dedicated (laughs) news sites every morning and have a look at them. But yeah, thank you for that.
1: It's interesting to think of Facebook as replacing the front page of a newspaper or the front page of a website. So it's a way that we come to news. We go via Facebook or we might be reading an instant article and that is where the news provider's content is hosted on the platform, um, which is doing all kinds of things to the way that content can be monetized. Um, What are some of the problems that you guys see in the near future if Facebook is onboarding all this content?
2: And I think the commercial um, pressures that it puts on media outlets mean that some media outlets are having to find their traffic in other ways and that might mean potentially dumbing down their headlines or their own front page. It might mean kowtowing to the different pressures that, or the different priorities Facebook's put on, on traffic, for instance, video. Video is a big one. So Facebook algorithm is prioritizing video to such an extent that every newsroom across Australia and the world is focusing on video at the moment.
1: It's interesting because when the World Wide Web was hatched, it was thought by media commentators that the future will be a place where people dive deep and like go wide getting their news. But With the rise of social media, given that your Facebook feed is populated by content that plays to your confirmation bias, we've kind of seen an opposite of those early predictions of what the internet would do.
0: It has narrowed, rather than broadened, our horizons. I think for the last decade or more, we've seen a signal-to-noise ratio issue. There's so much out there, it's nearly impossible to find what you're actually looking for in terms of, you know, just brand new things to discuss. I think that's been the problem is that we increasingly look for ways to have an incredible wealth of information tailored for us and that tailoring is always going to be problematic.
2: And I think it's also important to remember that there's nothing particularly new about the idea of wanting to read stuff you agree with.
0: <laughs> that's right. And we'll never really
1: know if there, if there was such a thing as like the halcyon days when people read everything in a newspaper. We never know what they actually read and we never know how far through an article they got. So sometimes we we say that people's attention spans are shot um, because they will never scroll down to the end of the article. But how do we ever know that anything that was in print was ever read by anyone <laughs> or if it was just lining the bottom of our kitty litter trap? <laughs> You're listening to Fourth Estate. I'm Marcus Costello and I'm speaking with Daniel Wild, Nick Healy and Steph Harmon. According to a new report from Harvard's Shorstein Center, mobile-only internet access has risen more sharply among Latino, Black and low-income Americans. But because of connection speed, smaller screens and the high cost of data, this group of people don't spend as long reading the content on their phone as they would on a desktop or in print. The report's author, Joanna Dunaway, has said, A conceivable result is a widening disconnect between those who are politically interested and informed and those who are not. Given that this disconnect falls along income, racial, ethnic and occupational lines, the effect could be an acceleration of the divide between America's haves and America's have-nots. This at a time when that divide is already a source of political concern and unrest. She continued, It may be correct to conclude, as some already have, we're entering an era of second-class digital citizenship led by a mobile-only digital underclass. Steph, do you agree that the mobile revolution could be creating a less, a less engaged second-class citizenship of news consumers?
2: Hmm, having not done my own research, <laughs> <laughs> um, I definitely can understand the idea that it's creating a wider gap. I don't know if, if it's... A, I, I get worried when people ascribe anything negative to progress you know we've done every time a new technology is introduced there's a reason to balk at it and i understand that i do think it's um by the nature of technology it's always going to benefit richer people um and i think that that is worrying i understand that it might mean that the people who aren't marginalized in communities have a broader understanding because they're reading more on their mobiles of what's happening in the news but I don't know what we're comparing that to. Are we comparing it to people who didn't have a computer before and now have a mobile? In which case, aren't they getting more information than they did before?
0: I think it's a really good point. I think it harks back to what we were talking about before the break, that we don't know what people were consuming. This idea that they might be consuming less supposes that on a computer that they may never have had, they were reading the whole article. I think it's a really complex topic.
1: Isn't it a bit moralistic to say that someone's a second-class citizen because they prefer to read? you know, quick reads, like sport and <laughs> entertainment rather than politics.
2: Yeah, I think that's a conversation that's happened for generations as well. Right. But, uh, but uh, you know, in terms of democracy and the healthy functioning of democracy, uh, perhaps second-class citizen as a term is referring to people who have less information to make more informed choices, in which case I understand why it's being used there.
3: Dan? Well, I think a, a poor person today can consume far more news and information than the richest person ever could in the 1700s, for example. So... I think the, the technological progress and the manner in which people are consuming news and information and the, the cost effectiveness of being able to access that information has unambiguously been a good thing for everybody. And I think disproportionately so for people on a lower income, you can afford uh, to obtain the relevant technology and access for um, you know, reasonable, uh, reasonable prices, such that the vast majority of people have access to the same information. It's not just a small select group of people in society who can access information that's open to everybody. And so I think that is unambiguously good. I think a, a sort of related point is, of course, people would um, use different devices to consume information news for different purposes. So as an example, people may be using their mobile phones uh, to consume news for entertainment purposes while they pass the time when they're commuting to work, for example, as opposed to using other you know, desktop computer or laptop when they're actually more seriously engaging with with content. So I think that just the fact that those different devices are probably used at different parts of people's days and for different purposes probably explains some of the the difference in their engagement with the actual content on those devices. Mm. Steph, to what
1: extent as an editor do you commission stories and edit stories and think about storytelling based on what device and what frame of mind and what time of day people are consuming that content?
2: I would say as an editor, it doesn't really impact my work that much. I think it impacts our tech teams a lot more. Uh, It's about how you present the information now. You have to present a story better for Facebook and you've got to share it potentially at a time where they're going to be on the train on their way to or from work reading it. But as an editor, it doesn't impact what I commission.
0: I think news organisations are really thinking about what will look good. A lot are. I think really, uh, really thinking of a mobile first strategy, whether that's impacting the quality of the information is a different thing, but they are talking about how to present this best to people who are reading on smaller screens. I think they have to. So Nick, as a former technology
1: writer, what is it that is key to an app engaging people to stay with content.
0: Now, look, if I knew that, I'd be <laughs> extraordinarily wealthy and would have sold it a long time ago. This is the thing. We are, we are running up flags and seeing what gets saluted at. We do not know exactly what works right now because everything's changing. It's not that long ago that the entire topic of conversation was about how to make a newspaper look good on an iPad. Mm. Now we don't even want to talk about that anymore. This is just the, the rapidity of the pace is, is ridiculous. Yep,
1: this could all be stale by the time we go out tomorrow. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: <much.
1: laughs> That's it from us on 4th Estate. Thanks to my guest, Daniel Wild. Thank you. Thanks, Steph Harmon. Thanks for having me. Nick, thank you for handing over your seat tonight. An absolute pleasure. Don't forget you can subscribe to the 4th Estate podcast. My name's Marcus Costello. You can catch us at the same time next week.